Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer, and with me, not as always, is a week that the Red Wings uh, won two games since the last time we recorded. I have two wins in, in this economy? You've got... I, I was I was thinking about this after that game finalized with the Fabry goal, and I was going, is this the first time you and I have recorded this season uh, where we don't have to talk about a loss? And I was trying to think about it, and I was, I was briefly skimming the schedule. The only other time I can really find where we may not have recorded with having to talk about a loss is honestly after the opening night weekend uh, where the Wings beat Dallas and Nashville back-to-back to... Back to to start off their season. So, you know, I think thinking about this, it's been a long time coming. It is. It's a little bizarre. I mean, I'm, there, there's still certainly plenty to uh, to nitpick about some of these wins, but I also thought uh, the, the big standout to me was a pretty resilient effort against Tampa where you thought that once Tampa clawed back into that game, it was kind of only a matter of time. The Red Wings have only scored five goals in two separate games this season. I did not think once Tampa clawed back from 4-2, they were going to be able to do it. This time, turns out they actually still didn't do it, but uh, they pull it out in the shootout uh, and a really nice move from Robbie Fabry, but but just an all-around uh, resilient effort from the team, including an overtime that was, has to be one of the best I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, you, you looked at this team and you thought, all right, this is going to go the, the very typical way. Because, I mean, the Wings have scored first in, in a lot of games this season. And in fact, they're actually quite awful when they score first, which is very surprising. And so... You know they they come out of the gates they get the they get the early goal from Robbie Fabry on a, on a great play and you're thinking all right you know they they get the first one in but then Tampa comes back and 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 they get a couple and you're going all right here here we go this is this is Red Wings hockey the wheels are about to fall off but then Detroit comes back you know with three consecutive goals and they go up four uh, two and you're going huh this is a little bit weird but give it time and then sure enough Tampa comes back with a couple of goals and you're going all right all right here's Detroit hockey. But no, they, they hung in tight, and I thought really that third period was one of the most entertaining third periods that they've played this season. I thought there was chances for both teams. It wasn't simply just Jonathan Bernier bailing the wings out, although he had several monumental saves, and I really think, uh, you know, this game could have been seven or eight for, uh, if not for him, but, but really beyond that, I was just impressed that the wings continue to take it to Tampa, and yes, Tampa is missing Victor Hedman and, and Steven Stamkos, and yes, they just played a uh, a game 18 hours ago against Boston uh, that was a brutal game that also went to, uh, you know, basically pushed them to a lot of extra effort in that third period. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why Tampa would, didn't have to be good, but Detroit still was able to hang with them, which is really impressive. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical to uh, to crown the win too much when it is coming over, you know, Curtis McElhaney, no disrespect, on the second night of a back-to-back. Uh, I don't think that's quite the same as, you know, taking down the lightning, uh, but nonetheless a good win. And one of the things I'm kind of interested about, especially after they, they did, basically did the same thing in Chicago earlier in the week, I almost wonder if their March schedule will end up helping them in a strange way just because – when all these other teams are coming in with, you know, a playing for their lives edge to them, does that just raise the tone of the game and, and kind of almost force the Red Wings into playing kind of meaningful tight hockey when otherwise there's not a whole lot of motivation uh, to be found other than, you know, pride and, and playing for jobs? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question to raise. And, you know, again, if you think back to last season, right, the Red Wings were um, very much in, in one of the worst spots in the league until – 
sure enough, March came around, and, and about midway through March, the Wings just ripped off a, a pretty solid win streak where they ended up winning seven of uh, eight games to, to close out the month of March. And, and that stretch was not an easy stretch. They went up against the Islanders. They were at Vegas, at San Jose, which meant something last year. Uh, you know, they had a win over Boston, a win over Pittsburgh, um, all in that stretch. And so, you know, you kind of wonder, hey, they, with that same kind of uh, murderer's row schedule, did, did that bring the best out of the wings last year? Um, and then same thing this year, you know, maybe you and I have been talking about, oh, boy, like they may not get two points the rest of the way. Well, sure enough, they've already started off the month with four points. And and maybe this, this uh, challenging schedule is going to really push – the Red Wings to kind of pick up and kind of save face because, you know, if they hadn't won either of these games, they actually would have locked up first overall That's right. at this point. And so, odds. yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, I should say uh, the, the best odds for the lottery. They would have actually locked that up had they lost both of those games. But because they won them both, the dream's still alive for potentially uh, – Slightly worse draft odds, but either way, I, I do is that think a dream? is that a dream? I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe you're just gonna like uh, galaxy brain this and say I would I'd that's rather right. not have the best odds. Um, although that that's, right. that that that's a very bad thing. So pretend I didn't say that. Uh, but all that being said, I th- I do think the schedule is potentially bringing the best out of these guys, and I do think putting Bertuzzi, Larkin, and Mantha back together, and then you know the interesting wrinkle here is them going 11 and seven the last two games. I feel like that gives Blashill more opportunities to double shift Larkin, Mantha, Bertuzzi with Fabry and potentially makes him more dangerous. That's a really good point. And I, the 11 and 7 has stood out to me. In general, I think like most, maybe it's just like, I don't know if it's like a type A thing, if it's like a, a not liking change thing, but I think a lot of people have, myself included, like a immediately negative reaction to 11 and 7 if it's not being done under like emergency conditions. Like, what are you doing? This is not going to help rhythm. It's not going to help this or that. It actually kind of might be in this case, and I don't know if it's because the Red Wings are breaking in some young young guys and they're able to kind of uh, stagger and shelter their minutes a little easier than they could previously. Uh, but whatever it is, like it is kind of working. I thought Madison Bowie tonight, who only played about 14 minutes, uh, had a pretty strong game, especially one of his shifts in overtime. Uh, you look at Gustav Lindstrom; he played almost 22 minutes, including uh, the starting overtime, uh, and you know he's really shown something. So uh, I wonder. I, I just kind of wonder if maybe there's a little bit of a benefit to it. Jonathan Erickson only played seven minutes, uh, so maybe that's kind of your guy who you're saying is the seventh D. But if you're able to put him out there situationally and in times where you just really want someone who you are 100% certain you know what they are going to do, and I think that's kind of Jonathan Erickson's biggest selling point at this point is uh, you know he's going to make kind of the veteran play every time with a little bit of physicality. I could see that as a real argument. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, looking at this 11-7 and seven here, so if you look at... Uh, the, the game tonight, and if you just isolate the minutes at five on five, which again, there was a, there was a fair bit of power play time here, but we'll just right. start with the five on five time, um, or I should say even strength time to also include overtime. Robbie Fabry was on the ice for 39% of wow. the even strength time. Dylan Larkin, 35%. Tyler Bertuzzi, 33%. Anthony Mantha, 32%. So that's, that's a substantial amount of time you're actually able to get those guys out. And, and again, conventionally speaking, uh, you know, maybe these guys are closer to 28% on the season. So you're getting a little bit more uh, mileage out of Mantha, Bertuzzi, and, and Larkin. But getting that much extra out of Fabry and being able to 
kind of situationally deploy him in in scenarios that are favorable to him. So maybe uh, situations when his team is breaking the puck out of the offense or out of the defensive zone, or when they've had sustained possession for a while and he's able to sneak onto the ice. I thought Blashell did a really good job utilizing him tonight and getting him in situations where he could be dangerous. And and quite honestly, he was Detroit's most dangerous player on the night. Um, you know, even though he doesn't necessarily have the point totals that the other guys, uh, Larkin, Bertuzzi, and Mantha may have, I thought he was consistently um, generating quality chances by himself, and, and I think a large part of that is how he was utilized. So, hey, maybe this 11-7, and 7, when you only have a handful of offensive weapons, all these guys are, are, are under 25 or 25 or younger, you may be able to get some miles out of them here. And it is funny, too, I mean, to your point about Fabry getting some time with Larkin, like we've talked at various points when people have, have asked us, why is this guy not playing higher up in the lineup? And we've kind of said, well, yeah, literally everyone would be better off if they could play more shifts with Dylan Larkin. Maybe they're just going to do that. Maybe that's the answer to this is everyone will play more shifts with Dylan Larkin now. And sometimes that's the way to do it. I mean, if you just say, hey, I just need to get you more time with Dylan Larkin, that's going to potentially get you going. Um, you know, maybe maybe that's the answer here. And so... Uh, again, I really thought this was one of Fabry's best games on the season, and I do think this uh, scenario where you've got this 11 and seven really, really helped. And and again, if you flip it back to the Chicago game, it was it was a slightly different story where Darren Helm was kind of the beneficiary, and he spent a lot more time um, as that extra fourth forward, if you will. He played almost 34 uh, percent of the uh, of of all minutes. Um, in that situation, Larkin was almost on the ice for 39%, uh, about 38% at even strength. So I think, I think this, uh, 11 forward system is allowing Blaschel to get a couple of different combinations, get a couple of guys going, but also, um, you know, mix and match other fourth forwards, if you will, with some of his top guys, uh, to put them in advantageous offensive situations. Yeah. You know what's interesting with Fabry? I don't know if, I don't know if this has been talked about much yet. We, I've asked about it uh, last week, and I think uh, I think Blashell talked about it a little more even the other night with Fabry. But I'm not sure if if this has been like you know written much yet. Like the the way that he's responded from the knee to knee hit was something that the Red Wings were kind of interested in and in what it was going to be like because when they first acquired him, there was a message from Blashell about you know if he's going to be like a successful a good player in the NHL. He has to be tenacious. He has to have like really high battle level. Uh, and they, you know, when you, when you have a knee injury and a scare, I, I think it's a fair concern, which is kind of where the, the, the conversation was coming from of like, can, can you, you know, put it out of your mind and still play with kind of, you know, reckless abandon, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, going into corners, laying hits. And, you know, he comes back, he lays the huge hit on Landeskog. Uh, you see him just fighting. Now he's getting some minutes at center, which is almost going to um, necessitate more kind of confrontation and conflict there. I think it's really interesting to see how resoundingly he has responded from that and and not only come out with, with like not deteriorated battle and compete but almost improved since then. Yeah, I mean, he's really come after it and you really couldn't have blamed him if he was very cautious coming back. I mean, this is a mm-hmm. guy who's had two major ACL operations. Granted, they were on the other knee, it wasn't the knee that he went knee to knee with, but Either way, I mean, this is a guy who has a history of it. You, you can surely bet that when that hit happened, he's going, oh, boy, not again. And and so for him to come back from that hit 
and be able to get after it, be able to be aggressive, tenacious all around the net, um, generating chances, skating with the puck, um, you know, and not being afraid to be physical. I think this is everything you're hoping for, um, you know, from this guy. And, and he really gives the wings uh, an additional weapon beyond that top line. And then, again, like we've talked about, having the 11 forwards uh, allows him to mix in with that top trio um, in a way that you couldn't really do when you're running kind of set forward lines when you have 12 forwards uh, dressed for the game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anything else on the game that really stood out? I mean, I think the Larkin line was was dominant again, really strong showing, resilient. Anything else before we, we shift into kind of some of the newsier items? Nope. I really think the, the, re, the trio of Bertuzzi, Larkin, and Manta has really put their stamp on the last two games and uh, really going to be fun to watch the rest of the way here in March. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see. We'll see how it manifests for everybody and how, how whether how well it can keep up. Uh, but certainly some good vibes. Uh, a welcome welcome sight in the Red Wings uh, locker room tonight. So uh, the first thing I, I didn't even see until uh, I was getting on to record here, but apparently Cap Friendly saying Red Wings have signed Alex Biega to a contract extension, uh, one year, less than a million dollars. To me, this looks like a pretty good deal for the Red Wings. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a, Diego's been a serviceable seventh defenseman, uh, for the Wings this season. He's obviously a guy in Vancouver who didn't really get much of a shot. So, uh, for him to find a home in Detroit, get a lot of ice time and, and, you know, play as reasonably well as one could expect a seventh defenseman to play on a historically bad team. I think, you know, all of that being said, I think he's, he's done an okay job. He's not blowing the doors off anything here. Um, but, you know, one year, $875,000 of note, it is a one-way contract, meaning his, uh, his cap hit in the NHL, uh, counts if he were to be sent to the AHL. There isn't a different salary, um, that he is going to be assigned. All that being said, the 875000 is entirely variable, meaning if he were to be waived and, and sent down to Grand Rapids, um, you know, for that purpose, that, that, that cap would not need to count. Um, or none of that would count against the Red Wings cap, I should say. Um, so, Max, I guess one of the things that, that is interesting to me about this is when you sign Biega, you've now got conceivably seven defensemen who are going to be in the running for jobs next year. And so you've obviously got Patrick Nemeth, who's going to be under contract. Danny DeKaiser uh, is going to be under contract. And Philip Ronick. And those are kind of your three guarantees um, for roster spots. And then beyond that, you've obviously got Gustav Lindstrom, who's been up playing for the last little bit here, Biega, who has re-signed, and then a couple guys in Grand Rapids right now, and Moritz Sider and Dennis Chalowski. So how do you see this shaping out uh, or shaping up for next season? Do you see, um, you know, the Wings deciding to carry maybe eight defensemen and going out and still getting another veteran? Or do you think they're reasonably content with the seven they've got here and maybe decide to run with that lineup? I think it makes sense to go get another veteran for this reason. They, number one, as the Red Wings have seen in a, in a couple seasons now, um, the odds of you maintaining seven defensemen through a full season with injuries are already incredibly low. And then you add in the fact that the number of the guys that you just stated who are really young in their career, I mean, Heronic now I think you can almost kind of push past that label as he gets closer to kind of that you know, 150, 200 game mark, but still you got, you know, Chalowski, Sider, and Lindstrom. These are guys who, whoever, you know, whoever is around them, they're still going to make some mistakes. And, you know, I, 
games are, uh, you know, games are one thing to play, uh, you know, how, how much minutes you're kind of rationing guys in, but I think they're going to want the tool of being able to sit a guy out and scratch a guy. And so I think, you know, that doesn't mean that you're going to go into the, into the year saying that one of your young guys is going to be the seventh D on a nightly basis. That's not what I'm saying, but the ability to cycle guys in and out of the lineup, have them watch a game here and there, uh, and then prepare for injuries. To me, I just think having eight D makes a lot of sense. Now it will be interesting. I mean, that's also assuming zero attrition from that group. I'm not totally ready to to predict that either. Like it wouldn't stun me to see some kind of trade um, happen, you know, with with somebody. I mean, that's just the way that that Eiserman's gone so far. Is he's he's been pretty active on the phone. So, uh, but to me, I think what I'm what I would say are I'm pretty confident at this point. As I would say, DeKaiser, Nemeth, Heronik, uh Now, I mean, obviously, Biega, and I I have to think more insider as a full time NHLer next year. I just I've seen nothing in in his season in the AHL that makes me think he needs to go back and repeat that level next season. Uh, so to me, that's kind of five locks. Lindstrom inching a little bit closer, frankly, to locking that up too. Um, you know, I've been kind of up and down on him throughout his prospect tenure. I, I still don't think there's a lot of offense there, but they really like his, his hockey sense, his compete level, and they think, you know, as he continues to get faster and stronger, there's a role for him. Jeff Fleschel's already kind of signaling that a little bit. He played him on the, he's played him on the power play. Like, that's the last place I would expect to see him, and they've already put him there. I think it's a handedness thing, but, you know, it's, it is still a little bit of a sign. So, I think to me that puts Chalowski, uh, you're wondering how he can change the picture. Can he have another great summer? Can he make big strides? Uh, and then obviously Bowie's kind of the other guy that you wonder, He's an RFA. Will they want to bring him back? Uh, the Biega signing, I think, is an interesting wrinkle for for him and what they do there. I think another veteran will be helpful. Yeah, I think a, I think the other veteran piece is going to be really, really interesting because, one, I think you already brought it up here. Um, what does the Biega contract mean for how the Wings proceed with Madison Bowie? Because if they bring back Bowie, now you're talking about eight guys potentially uh, being in the mix uh, for NHL time, all eight guys having received – NHL time aside from Cider, who again, you know, you and I both expect to be full time in the NHL next year. And so how do you ensure all of that works out or plays out? I think this will be really, really interesting. And I think your point that you made about, you know, this may not be the, the group of eight guys that goes into, uh, the offseason or that is even there at training camp, given how much Eiserman has, has worked the phones. There may be some guys on their way out. There may be, uh, other moves on the horizon. I think the, the piece that I'm most interested in is is what happens with Bowie and what happens with this other veteran. Because if you bring another veteran in, as opposed to bringing one up from Grand Rapids like the Wings have done with Dylan McElrath, Brian Lashoff, Joe Hicketts, etc. If you bring another veteran in and kind of you know cement them into a roster spot along with Philip Ronick, Patrick Nemeth, and Danny DeKaiser... You're now taking, you know, Dennis Chalowski, Moritz Sider, Gustav Lindstrom, and you're going to put them in that tier where, and, and even Alex Piega in that tier as well of who's going to rotate in those spots. And if you want to make sure Sider's got a slam dunk spot, now you're talking about potentially having Chalowski or Lindstrom sitting up in the press box. And, and again, how does that benefit them versus potentially being in Grand Rapids versus you know, a couple of other scenarios. So I think there's a lot to think about from this uh, this signing and kind of how the Wings choose to proceed. But to me, it, it does make sense that one or more of these guys may not actually be here at training camp. Yeah, and, and he, for people who are concerned about kind of like overcrowding, here's what I'd also say about Biega. Biega is a guy who 
can give you, number one, kind of the very steady veteran uh, presence that teams always want around, even if he's not playing in the locker room, right? He, he came from Vancouver, which has kind of, you know, gone from the bottom rung up on the upslope. So he knows what that looks like. He knows culture-wise what those demands are to become a winning team. Even if you are planning, if you go into this planning to, let's say you're planning to scratch him 30, 40 times next season, which I'm not saying is the case, uh, but that's something that you always know you have the ability to do. It's not going to affect him substantially. Everyone has a little bit of rhythm, uh, you know, getting in and out of, but, you know, I, I don't think it's going to, you know, make or break his confidence. Even like, so let's say your ideal world is your young players all are perfect and never have to be scratched, which is never going to happen, but just for hypothetical sake, and you end up having him mostly around for uh, veteran leadership injuries and all that stuff. Uh, that's perfectly worth the contract too, in my opinion. So uh, I'm sure he's he is going to play real real games, real minutes. He's proven uh, a, a lot of uh, trustworthiness already. So that's don't mistake that for me saying that's what it's about. But I'm just saying it. I don't think it inherently jeopardizes um, you know the rookies or or kind of making that a a you know zero sum situation if that makes sense. Yeah, you know I think a lot of people may just be a little nervous about if you flash back to the beginning of the season when the Wings had. Again, such a logjam, and ultimately that logjam resulted in an Oliver Caskey being sent to Carolina. That resulted in Billy Sariarvi being dealt to Arizona. And so, again, you do you do wonder if if uh, potentially creating another logjam results in the Wings having to move more guys out to making sh- to make sure that the the guys they want actually get to play. I don't see it that way, at least as of yet. And I actually, again, like I just mentioned, believe that someone. Um, not naming any names because I have no idea, may actually, you know, not be here at the time of training camp. Yep, yep. I think that's a fair fair perspective on it. The other thing, Mort Sider is back. You know, he, he's he's not healthy for the injury. So um, we still haven't quite heard official confirmation, though we've kind of made our speculations on, on what that may have been. Uh, I think he had an assist the other night. The fact that he's back now, there's a, we talked about that one stretch where maybe the Red Wings could steal him for a, a game or two without it being too disruptive to the AHL uh, team. Any any big uh, thoughts on Cider being back as of yet? Uh, I know there was one question I saw come in that was, does the Red Wings kind of having some success affect Cider coming back at all? I don't think so, but do you have any opinion on all that? No, I don't. I honestly don't think any of this impacts that. I obviously Green Rapids is still very much locked in this playoff battle. I I don't think they're going to spare him. I think they're going to run with Gustav Lindstrom, and and I I just don't think you'll see him this year. Which again, um, you know, if you weren't going to burn the entry level contract, to me, it didn't really matter a whole lot one way or another. Certainly would have been nice for the fans to see him up in the NHL, but. I think at the end of the day, you got to do what you think is best for his development. I don't know that anything the Wings do right now changes that, and I don't know that anything Cider does right now really changes that. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo, for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible. Unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid if his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. 
And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it out one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the one you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with code WINGS. That's theblacktux.com, code WINGS, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux. Formal wear for the moment. Uh, okay, let's see. Zadina... He's coming back soon. I mean, he was at practice the other day. I don't think there's much more update beyond that. It still hasn't been a hard timeline. Um, but that's, you know, in the pipe. I think that'll probably help, uh, especially if people want to see them go back to 12 forwards. That'll probably do it. Um, once he's back, they'll want to get him on a consistent wing with consistent linemates. I think it'll be interesting, especially if they keep Robbie Fabry uh, at center. That could be an interesting potential center for him. I might have fun with a uh, you know Fabry, Sam Gagne, Philip Zadina second line. I feel like that could actually yeah. do a little bit of damage there. There's definitely some skill. I think Gagne's got the right blend. I like Gagne so far. Yeah, I mean, you and I talked about it on the last episode. He seems like the right guy that if he's interested in sticking around in Detroit and and you're able to make the dollars work where he's comfortable taking another one or two year deal at, you know, sub three million a year. Uh, he's a guy that I, I wouldn't mind having around. He's again, a very talented player, seems to play with the right pace. So he'd be a good guy to, to pair with Philip Zadina for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing, obviously, Jonathan Bernier is a guy who we haven't mentioned. Uh, I don't even think we've mentioned him yet in the show. He was outstanding tonight. Yeah. I mean, he was absolutely sensational. I think. You know, I think early on the game could have gotten out of hand. He had a couple of outstanding saves, one on Kucherov. Um, that was absolutely phenomenal. A couple of great other point-blank chances. Uh, you flash back to the Chicago game, the save on Alex DeBrincat, just unreal. His ability to push from left to right, get that toe there, and then uh, be able to keep his positioning to make the save on the rebound. Uh, you know, this is... It's always an interesting thing whenever you come and you start talking about Vezina voting for goaltenders because a lot of times it, it goes to the goalie that's got the most wins yeah. or or potentially has a you know playing really well on a really good team. Jonathan Bernier belongs in the Vezina conversation, and I'm going to stake my claim on that. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Max. Yeah, no, I I mean I I personally like I don't know if I have a vote this year or not. I don't I don't I'm not sure, but. Uh... I probably wouldn't cast it, but I'm also a little bit shy to uh, to rock the boat too much, and I'd, I'd be a little bit nervous. I'll say this. If I wasn't covering him, I'd be a lot uh, more kind of ready and willing to make a, a vote like that, although I also don't know that I could fault someone for, you know, just not knowing that he's been this good. I think there's always a little bit of fear that you're going to be – if you vote for a, a goalie for Vezina on a team that's going to be historically bad for the era – uh, I don't know if I if I could quite bring myself there, but I'll say I wouldn't kill someone for giving him a vote. How about that? I think that's where I'm at, too. I don't think he could win. I think you're looking at Connor Hellebuck having to win this year. I think Hellebuck... Oh, I don't mean a first-place vote. I mean, yeah. like, you know, toward the yeah. back of the ballot. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like, I, I, would, I want to see him get votes. I want people to recognize that on a team as bad as the Detroit Red Wings this season, a team that at one point was giving up four goals a game... Uh, he has played so well that he's actually 10th in the league amongst goalies and wins above replacement, and that's per evolving hockey. And it's such a disparity between him and Jimmy Howard, who is actually dead last in 78th. 
that if you just think about the amount of value that Bernier is bringing to this team, it's it's off the charts. Uh, I really, truly believe he's a guy that belongs, you know, in the top eight of, of votes uh, for the Vezina. I mean, I, I would be co- totally fine seeing him, you know, even get a couple of fifth place votes because after Hellebuck, I think he can make a decent case for, for uh, Tuka Rask. I think you could also make a case for another goaltender on a bad team, Mackenzie Blackwood, who I think has been absolutely sensational for the New Jersey Devils. Um, ben Bishop. Yeah, Ben Bishop in Dallas has been really, really good as well. But after Carter that, Hart, quietly. Yeah, Carter Hart and Philly's on fire right now. So, yep. you know, they're another team that he may get some votes. But Bernier's got to be in that conversation. I think he's been that good. He keeps the wings in it. And if he gets goal support, he can actually win some games. And I think that's just been the difference. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm trying to think in my head right now if I had a ballot. It would be Hellebuck, Rask, Bishop... Uh, Markstrom and then Hart, Bennington, maybe in some order. I've liked Leonard's year too so far. He's been, he's been already good in Vegas as well. Uh, so I don't think I could get Bernier into my ballot, but again, I, if someone had him there, having watched him all year, I could not fault that. Yeah. I mean, I think he, he belongs in that conversation. I think you, you could look out at like Darcy Kemper out in Arizona, mm-hmm. although he hasn't really played as much, um, you know, to warrant that. Um, and Simeon Varlamov, I think, has also been quite good in the Islanders. He's really been able to come in and, and, and replace uh, Robin Leonard to a certain extent. So, you know uh, what? I just realized Bernie's war is this is like above Markstrom. Yeah, I mean, he's above, above Bennington, Bennington, Markstrom, well. Carter Hart, Leonard. Like when you're talking about the guys that had a Jonathan Bernie right now, it's Hellebuck, Rask, Bishop, Varlamov, Kemper, Anton Hudobin, Blackwood. Ansi Ranta, Corey Crawford, Philip Grubauer, and then Jonathan Bernier. So like that's that's the company he's keeping, and he's he's not all that far off some of those guys. So I, I really truly believe he is in that conversation. It's a good argument. I did not realize it was that uh, it was that extreme. So that's it's an impressive season for Jonathan Bernier. I do hope, regardless of what happens with the Vezina, and I don't think it's fair to necessarily expect the visitor to tell the story of of a goalie on a team like this i just hope that some people do take note because it has been very impressive to watch especially when you consider like that's a full season stat we're talking about with war uh since like december it's been crazy yeah i mean that's where i'm at is like no one uh you know traditionally speaking like when people go to vote for this it, it generally aligns pretty well with goalie wins but I want to make the point that on this historically bad team, this historically awful defensive team, Jonathan Bernier belongs in the conversation of best goaltender because he has been that good. And I want to make sure he gets his due. Can he stop the coronavirus? That is an entirely different question and one where I'm going to say probably not. Do you want to talk about the coronavirus anyway? I think we should, just because I think now this is starting to have wide-ranging ramifications, um, really, in everyone's daily life. I think particularly in the United States, uh, you know, the coronavirus has really taken off over the last two weeks with, you know, cases initially starting in on the West Coast and in uh, Kings County and then down in California, and now you've got cases really all over the country, and so I do think... Uh, you're seeing a lot of things impacted. Obviously, the Women's Worlds in Halifax were canceled. You've had multiple uh, Division Two and Division Three men's and women's uh, U18 tournaments canceled. Um, you know, there's been talk about canceling uh, the U18s in Plymouth 
which would have serious impacts on on the upcoming draft, uh, you know, in terms of uh, getting your last opportunity to scout some of these top players in, in, in a big tournament. And then, obviously, uh, the NHL has just recently started to limit access uh, to the locker rooms uh, with most teams complying uh, to try and, again, help prevent the spread. So I think it's a worthwhile topic for us. Uh, Max, I mean, I don't know what you've had a or I guess what the wings have really communicated with you guys in terms of how they're going to enforce this. But I wanted to see if you had any insight on, on, on that front. They had open locker room as usual after the game. Now the post game with the Red Wings is kind of interesting. I don't know if I've talked about it here before. It's a little different than what I've experienced going into some other visiting uh, locker rooms post game where they still have guys like at their lockers. The Red Wings always just bring a few select players up to the front of the room to do it in front of a backdrop anyway. So it's already, I think a little different, um, than maybe what some other places, I, you know, I guess it's not necessarily totally different, but like I've been in, I think I covered, um, Red Wings Leafs game last year at one point and they had, you know, multiple guys talking at once in different parts of the room. Um, I have not yet seen that in the Red Wings locker room since I've been on the beat. So maybe that's part of the difference i'm curious to see what it's like um this week at like practices because that's you know obviously from our standpoint especially at the athletic the more important thing i, I never found the post game uh, press conferences all that illuminating either um but you know when, when you get guys spread around the room i think that's the more interesting uh, thing if they continue to allow that obviously i hope they do i think it's interesting though that the nhl kind of allowed that to leak uh, that that was something they were considering shutting off. I know I'm pretty sure some teams have actually enforced that so far, and I think it's interesting. I think that obviously the coronavirus sounds very serious. I was reading some threads uh, today about the ripple effects, and obviously I think you posted something that um, had a little bit of uh, a thread that had some detail on the ramifications. I didn't know much about like the doubling rate and how just slowing it down could have a huge impact on just the ability of the healthcare system to contain it. I have to imagine that is the driving force behind something like this. I I also understand that, like, as media who travels and flies commercial, we actually may be slightly riskier people to have around. Um, but I also think if if we're getting to that level uh, where, you know, you're going to say these, these 10 or 11 or however many traveling media you have, it does make me wonder at what point you just cancel the hockey games or whatever because – you know, the players travel a lot too. They're still in society and they're sweating on each other out there. So, um, in a vacuum, obviously, I, it has implications on my job, but I, I think it's kind of also telling at the level of potential, um, precaution they are taking, you know, the severity of this. Yeah, I think that's, I think you raised kind of a lot of interesting points and I'll kind of couch everything I'm about to say with, again, most of you who listen to this probably know, um, I'm a pharmacist by training. Uh, my background and actually multiple years of residency is, is in training is in uh, pharmacy practice and then in cardiology. So I'm by no means an expert in infectious diseases whatsoever. I did have to do a couple of rotations through those services, but um, by no means is this my expertise. I'm just more tangentially associated uh, you know, with this than, than most. And so what I'll try and explain is is I think a lot of the media coverage is basically focused on how quickly it's spreading, as well as the mortality rate. And a lot of those are really, really scary numbers. You know, immediate numbers out of China were that the mortality rate was somewhere as high as three and a half, you know, percent. I think right now, if you strictly look at the cases over in Italy and you look at the amount of deaths they've had relative to the number of diagnoses they've had, 
you know, the mortality rates are almost 5% uh, in Italy. I think it's, again, important to remember that those numbers are all likely very much overstated because for the majority of people, and this is about 80% of cases, the symptoms are not uh, significant or they're not substantial. Um, there is 20% of the population, those that are, you know, generally over the age of 50, those that have multiple multiple um, other medical uh, conditions, those that have baseline lung problems, you know, things of that nature. Those are the po- that's the percentage of population that tends to be a lot more effective, or a lot more effective, I, I should say, than than the other 80%. And therefore, that other 80% may not always be tested, they, and therefore, you may not have really diagnosed all the potential cases that are out there. And and while most of the coverage has focused on that and there's, you know, people going back and forth uh, about kind of the press coverage there, I think the important thing to highlight is what you just said, Max. You have to look at specific to you, the United States, what the impact is on the healthcare system. So I'll tell you, just doing my job on a day-to-day basis, I round on an inpatient general cardiology team. Every day is a hassle of how do I create open beds so that I can bring patients into the hospital? How do I get people out that we have been able to heal and, and, and provide coverage to? How do we get those patients out of the hospital so that we can bring other ones in? And, and the biggest concern with having a surge of cases all at once, because we're either not trying to limit the spread, we're not quarantining, the big concern is that you have a large influx of people attempting to use the healthcare system. And and when that happens, um, you know, you have people who may not be significantly infected or significantly affected, and what they want to do is come in and, and get tested and see what they have. And that's, again, a spot that is being taken up. And what you're now starting to see in Italy is basically saturation of the healthcare system such that people are not able to actually come into the hospital, and that's when the mortality rate can get really scary because now people who have heart attacks – at another, at another hospital, maybe it's a smaller rural hospital, they can't get transferred to the big academic medical center to get their, you know, blockage taken out of their heart because there's no space in that hospital. And so that's the downstream effect. And so what you're attempting to do with canceling all these sporting events or, you know, trying to do things without large groups, canceling all these conferences, is you're trying to slow the rate of the spread because even if the total number of cases is the same, if you're able to make that happen over 18 months as opposed to two months, you're going to make it so that the healthcare system can actually address and handle all of that. Because if you saturate the healthcare system, if you completely saturate the ICUs, the intensive care units, uh, hospitals are just not going to be able to handle all of this at once. So yes, these uh, restrictions are frustrating. They're Annoying, I know there's a lot of people who are really excited to go to the Women's Worlds in Halifax. Just know that they're necessary in order for the health system to be able to sustain taking care of everybody that it needs to all at once. Yeah, and certainly as a sports writer, I belong to the uh, complainingest population uh, in the the United States, the contiguous United States, uh, and I will second that. Obviously, it it may come to affect my job, especially as the U18 world is concerned. I was very excited to potentially cover that tournament. We'll see if it it happens, Um, but obviously when, when you're talking about implications like that, uh, it does sound like the kind of thing where these these precautions could prove uh, very significant. Not not even necessarily to just helping kind of like the day to day people who you know are sick, but just the overall 
uh, wellness of the the population at large. Yeah, and you're already seeing a little bit of the effects based on what's happening in China right now. Obviously, they were very late to start quarantining people, and that's kind of how it they lost contain on everything. But once they really locked down their borders and really, you know, pushed forward on the quarantine, uh, the rate of new cases every day has dropped off dramatically, and they've been able to do that you know, over the course of several weeks. And that's the hope. If if you can really enforce the strict quarantine, you're not going to stop the spread entirely, but you are going to slow it down such that the healthcare system can handle it. Yep, absolutely. I am curious if it will affect, regardless of the U18 worlds, does it affect, like, the willingness to, say, send a GM or an assistant GM overseas to go scout prospects in Sweden or or Germany or whatever? Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly a, another question entirely. I think you've already seen it um, with some of the conferences in the United States that chose to proceed, and you had a couple of top-level executives choose to attend the conferences, and all of a sudden now they're part of the people that are exposed um, you know, to the coronavirus and, and potentially exposed um, to the detrimental effects. So I, I don't know what's... Uh, to say about that or what's to come of that. Um, if teams are really starting to quarantine, um, you know, some of their higher level personnel, I'll tell you at least on the hospital side of things, and a lot of big academic medical centers have actually prohibited travel for a lot of their physicians and, and healthcare personnel just to make sure that one, those guys, those people are really still available. Uh, to take care of people, and two, they're not putting themselves at risk of getting sick or, or potentially transmitting it elsewhere. So I do think it's something that NHL teams and really uh, teams across all sports are going to have to consider. It'll be something to follow really closely, especially you know as we'll see what exactly Im- impacts it has. Uh, I am curious, what is your kind of take on the merits of potentially uh, game- playing games with no crowds on the league? I mean, the analyst in me says this is a fascinating case study of the true effect of home ice advantage um, because, you know, how much does the fan really contribute there? But beyond that, I, I think it, it makes sense to do that because what you're effectively trying to avoid or, or prevent is having large gatherings of people where you just don't know who may or may not be affected, who may or may not be sick. They're still trying to fully elucidate You know, can you transmit before you show symptoms? How long are you really uh, infectious? So I think still proceeding with games without fans, I think, is reasonable, at least from my standpoint. Um, You've already seen that happen with uh, uh, RPI and Harvard in the ECAC quarterfinals. They're playing the games without any fans. Um, I know there's a, I believe, the D3 NCAA tournament that the games that are held at Johns Hopkins, there's not going to be any fans there. So I I think it's a reasonable thing to consider, um, you know, doing just to try and again, contain the the virus as best as you can. I am curious to see if that were to ever come to fruition and we don't know, I don't, I haven't heard, you know, much, you know, huge momentum to toward that end or anything like that. But if it were to come to fruition, the gate is going to affect hockey-related revenue. Not only does that have potential implications on like the league's whole financing system, and I don't potentially. I mean, the salary cap is like cap, right? I mean, is that, is that yeah? Olympics no, you're absolutely cap? right. The, the cap and then is like dependent. escrow, yep. Like the players, that's going to literally come out of the players' pockets to not have have crowds at games. 
Yeah, and that's why I personally believe the, the NHL will never go that route. I already thought the NHL... I was actually already surprised that the NHL was one of the first leagues, really the first league to go yep. uh, in the United States to get up and say, we're going to limit locker room access. Like, they're ahead of the NBA. The MLB said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, NFL is obviously not in session, but... Uh, you know, the NHL being the leader in that front, I thought was already surprising in and of itself. But with once it, once you're talking about money, uh, which again, restricting press access doesn't necessarily impact money per se to them directly. Uh, I think once you start talking about that and talking about ramifications of the cap, escrow, et cetera, you're, I don't think the NHL goes there. Well, here's my one plea from me, the protagonist of life. Uh, Get this whole disease wrapped up by June so that the draft in Montreal can go off without a hitch. <laughs> exactly. All right, awesome. Let's get to the listener questions. There's a good one from Lucas uh, to start off. If there's any player under 23 the Red Wings should attempt to trade for in the offseason, who would it be? His says his pick would be Romanov. I will say Montreal's not going to trade Romanov, but let's limit this to kind of reasonable players who you could realistically see the Red Wings attempting to trade for from the under-23 pool. Is there anyone that comes to mind? Ooh, that's a fun question because obviously you want to be able to add, um, you know, guys in this age bracket. Uh, you know, one guy that I think is really interesting for me out west, uh, if you're going to deal with them, would be um, Sam Girard in Colorado. I think he's a really interesting defenseman. I think he's, I believe he's 21, if I remember correctly. Uh, excellent puck-moving defenseman, real smooth skater. He would be a huge asset for the Wings. And the reason I also kind of pick on, on Sam Girard is because he, to me, doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility, just given that, again, Colorado's got Bowen Byron coming up. They've got Kill McCarr. They've got a handful of, of really solid players on that back end. Maybe they are more willing to part with, um, you know, a guy like Sam Gerrard. I, whether or not they actually will, I don't, I don't believe so, but he's a guy that's certainly really interesting to me, um, as a player that, you know, if you're able to nab him from, uh, from them, I think then you're off to a really, really good start. Um, and then really after that, I think I'm, you're just kind of picking on prospects and, and players that you might like from there, but he's kind of one of the more established NHL players that I would go after. What do you think, Max? I'm going to stick with the same team. I'm going to say Tyson Jost, who is the guy who has been really boxed out of the uh, Colorado lineup to a large degree. He's been in it more more often, and you know I shouldn't say boxed out, but pushed down the lineup um, out of some premier roles. This when I watch this guy live, I see a guy who could really flourish with a lot more opportunity. He's got a lot of pedigree. And uh, with the way their lineup is structured, I've got a really hard time seeing him playing anything more than a bottom nine kind of at best role. And that's with Colorado having a pretty defined bottom line that's having a lot of success already. To me, that's a guy. I don't think you'd get him for cheap, but I I would, you know, I would be, that would be a guy I would be checking in on uh, this summer. He fits the kind of the age window Iserman has gone after. He fits the, the right pedigree uh, combination. So I don't know what you have to give up to get it done. Uh, but that's a guy I would certainly be checking in on at some point this summer. Yeah, I think he's a good one. And I think if you're trying to add a couple other ones to the mix, um, you know, Kyler Yamamoto in, in Edmonton, I think he's, oh, he's uh, not going anywhere. I mean, now. he's not going anywhere <laughs> now that he's, that he's really ramped it up, but you, you might have had a chance there for a while. That's right. Um, and then, you know, after that, kind of my philosophy here is pick on the cup contenders that yeah. are going to put themselves in, in cap trouble. So if you look at like St. Louis, uh, you know, they're going to have to make deals with Jordan Carew and, and, and Robert Thomas 
relatively soon. I mean, maybe they're they're a team that you can go after. Vince Dunn's twenty three. Um, you know, maybe he's a player you can you can pick up. He's been you know kind like of on that. and off. You know, he's another guy that you can look at and say you might be able to get something from them, or or even pick out of their prospect pool and go after like Clem Costin. Uh, if you will, but either way, I think that's the that's the right mentality to approach this with is is find those players uh, that you can go after. Now, St. Louis obviously may be able to get out of some of this. Uh, you know, if Jay Bowmeister's Jay Bowmeister um, obviously is going to be done at the end of the year, and and he didn't have a contract coming back, but you know, they're a team I would certainly pick on as well. Do we think Doug Armstrong's taken Eiserman's call again after the Fabry de la Rose deal? I mean, if if the the rumors of the deal in terms of how it went down with with Doug Armstrong really just wanting to do Fabry a solid are true, if that's really true, then I see no reason why he wouldn't pick up Eiserman's call again. Fair enough. Uh, I agree with that. Jesse's Rule says, how do you think the Wings are in their fitness programs compared to the league? This season they've had about 300 games lost to injury. Has there been a difference in Eisenman's first year vis-a-vis fitness, off-ice? Uh, I can't understand the rest of that. Uh, but I'll, here, I'll, this is what I'll say. We don't necessarily watch the guys work out. I'll say I've often seen, um, like, on the whiteboard after the game, it'll say, like, post-game lift, and you'll see guys getting ready to go lift. That, to me, strikes me as a, a good thing. I've seen a lot of people pointing out the uh, man games lost and, and asking about, like, the bar whisk coming in and if that's contributed. Guys... I don't think there's a trainer in the world that can stop bones from breaking in hockey. And the Red Wings have had a lot of fractures this year. Athanasiu's prolonged injury was a fracture. Zadina's got a broken ankle. Mantha punctured a lung. Like, a lot of these games, you know, DeKaiser's got a back injury. I don't know specifically what that is. That doesn't strike me as something that, you know, the gym didn't properly prepare you for. So sometimes in really physical sports, a lot of injuries just kind of happen. So what you're effectively telling me is we need to get somebody who is willing to put adamantium into right. people's bones so that we can just have all the players basically be Wolverine. That's what I'm saying. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm totally on board with that, and, and maybe we can figure out how to make that happen so that, you know, the, the, the Red Wings stop having so many injuries. It's crazy that no one's thought of it before. It really is. Me. I mean, I think we're kind of breaking ground here. I think this is, this is uncharted territory for people. Yep, I would agree. Uh, okay, here's an interesting one from Bjorn. Michigan Tech has a power play featuring three defensemen. With the defensive struggles of the Red Wings lineup, should they consider playing three D-men at a time with a 9-9-2 lineup? <laughs> like, overall. So, like, I'm not necessarily... I think he's talking about 5-on-5. Five five. Like, would you ever dress nine D-men at a time? There's literally no reason. You're, if, <laughs> if, I was, if I was to actually do a lineup... I would try to do as much as I could to actually get rid of defensemen and just keep putting more forwards. Uh, so going the opposite direction for me, uh, that'd be a hard no because I, I, I think just with a lot of the way defensemen play and, and, and most of your defensemen, unless you've got truly groundbreaking guys like Kale McCarr, Quinn Hughes, a lot of these guys come through the ranks and they're effectively coached to be more that stay-at-home guys. They're not the guys that really push play, push the pace, get you the puck. They're the guys that would rather are, are much more comfortable just being in their own defensive zone and, and defending the puck. I know that because that was me when I was playing hockey. I didn't really want to cross center ice. I was more than happy to break up a rush, but I didn't really want to go the other direction. And I, I think you do see a fair bit of that with defensemen. And so I, I have no reason for the Wings to want to go in into the shell even more. I mean, it's it's hard enough to watch as it is. Don't don't add three more defensemen. 
I would actually love to see 13 and 5, where you're playing basically, obviously every D zone you're going to start with two defensemen on the ice, every D zone draw, uh, but when you're in the offensive zone, certainly, and maybe even some kind of like, you're on the right side of center ice for an offside faceoff, I'd be interested to see them roll out basically three to four different power play units, because I just think teams seem more willing to push the puck up ice in those situations, and that could... Could be horrible disaster, but I'd be interested to see it. Yeah, I mean, we already know the benefits of going to four forwards on the power play. Uh, obviously, even strength is is a different question entirely, but it, it's hard not to say or hard not to believe that at least some of those offensive benefits would come through. And if you situationally went to scenarios where maybe you went to like four forwards on offensive zone faceoffs, um, or if you went to four forwards when you're uh, on the long change, maybe in the second period, and you actually, as you're rushing the puck up ice, you swap you swap out a defenseman for a forward. I mean, I'd be totally on board with that. So yeah, give me a 13 and five, and I'll run a number of different scenarios where I'm putting four forwards out there. But I I just cannot add more defensemen. I agree. All right, uh, kind of on a somewhat similar note, actually, I'll wrap up with this one from Lezik, uh, who says. On one of the last episodes, we mentioned the idea of making... I don't think we did that. We didn't talk about making Perlini a defenseman, did we? There was like one listener question that talked about making him a defenseman. I want to say it was maybe three-ish weeks ago. All right. Well, we didn't mention it. We don't think it's a good idea, right? I mean, I wouldn't do it. Okay. But he says, what would you think about making Bowie a forward? That way his offensive side can be more utilized while limiting chances to make defensive mistakes. Do you have any thoughts on experimenting with Madison Bowie at forward? I think it's the same concept, and this is a, actually a very similar question that came up when the Red Wings had Brendan Smith. And Brendan Smith was an excellent skating defenseman. Uh, he could really move the puck up ice. Uh, people would get really mad at him for boneheaded pinches where he would try to pinch to keep the play alive in the offensive zone, would get burned, and then it would be a two-on-one the other way. Puck ends up in the back of his net. Uh, and so people actually talked about that at certain points, and actually Mike Babcock did play him at forward um, I believe one or two games uh, in his last season as coach. Uh, and now you look at him, he's playing on the Rangers fourth line and he's actually been decent on the fourth line over there for the Rangers. And, and once they had some injuries, they had to slide him back on defense. So again, for me speaking personally, I have no problem experimenting with that. I mean, you look at Detroit's fourth line, they're not really giving you much of anything in either direction here, offensively or defensively. I can't imagine it would be, the worst thing in the world to give eight minutes of Madison Bowie on on the fourth line, right? I'm against this one, but I get the argument. My take on Bowie is that like what he needs is minutes if you want to like improve him as a defensive player. Like it's just going to come through experience. To me, I, I just think that's it. Like tonight, you saw him play some great one-on-one defense in overtime. You had a couple of big hits behind the net. I don't think you want to sacrifice that that ability. Um, I think it's just a lot of like reps, right? So to me, I think the fact that he provides you offense from the blue line is what makes him an intriguing blue liner. And then you just try to round out the rest. You work with what you have. You don't necessarily try to, um, you know, typecast and then move. You know what I mean? I mean, teaching the defenseman defense defense is a bold move, right? But is it teaching him defense or is it just like giving him more experience at this level, right? Like, you know what I mean? That's fair. I mean, yeah, I, I'm just in the mindset, like, I, you know, I've said this a number of times with Bowie. I, I just don't see the, the defensive capabilities there, um, you know, to, to really say this guy's an everyday NHL defenseman. I think you certainly get nights like, um, you know, the game against Tampa Bay where he plays really, really well for most of the game. 
I think there's just too much inconsistency. And now once you're talking about a 23-year-old defenseman, uh, you are talking about running out of time to really uh, have the time to truly mold the guy into what you want. And so that's where I think, you know, from my standpoint, if the guy's looking to extend his career in the NHL, I have no problem giving him a shot in the fourth line and seeing what happens. Yeah, and I, I never have any problem experimenting or, or anything like that. I just think, you know, it's, it is a situation where if, if you got a guy who's giving you something you don't have at a position group, just kind of work to improve everything else and, and, and see what happens. You know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, you know, proclaiming he's going to be a, you know, a star defensive shutdown player ever, you know, but I just think, you know, know your strengths and, and get the rest of survivable and you got a, you got a little bit of a player, but we'll, we'll see what happens there. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm sure this is not the last time we'll get this question. It's not the first time we've gotten it either. So. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Awesome. All right. That's going to do it for us. The Red Wings are going to play the Hurricanes on Tuesday. So, uh, tune in to, uh, hear Prashanth break that game down between probably the two teams he knows better than any others. We will talk to you then.